Welcome to part one of the top 10 non-fiction books recommendations list. I'm Tom, one of the teachers here at Intrepid English, and before we begin, there's some vocabulary we need to go through. Haul, verb, pull or drag with effort or force, retreat, noun, an act of moving back or withdrawing, familiar, adjective, well known from long or close association. Books will out. This comes from the phrase truth will out, which means to show that you believe the truth will always be discovered. Bereaved, adjective. Be deprived of a close relation or friend through their death. Rawness, adjective. Painfully open as a sore or wound. Monitor, verb. Observe and check the progress or quality of something over a period of time. Unconsciously, adverb, without realizing or being aware of one's actions. Corporation, noun, a large company or group of companies authorized to act as a single entity and recognized as such in law. Hit and miss, adjective phrase. If something is hit and miss, it is only occasionally of good quality, on time, or accurate. Next to nothing. Idiom. Very little. Sensationalism. Noun. The presentation of stories in a way that is intended to provoke public interest or excitement at the expense of accuracy. Definitive. Adjective. Done or reached decisively and with authority. Indefinite, adjective, lasting for an unknown or unstated length of time. Murky, adjective, dark and gloomy, especially due to thick mist. Authorial, noun, the maker of anything, creator, originator. Feet, noun, an achievement that requires great courage, skill, or strength. Kettle of fish, idiom, a different matter. Titular, adjective, relating to or denoted by a title. Turmoil, noun, a state of great importance, confusion, or uncertainty. Enter the picture, idiom, to become involved in something. Now, the non-fiction I tend to read seems to be about the darker side of life. Not that I'm against humour or hopeful stories, it's just that, in times of darkness, I retreat to darkness. The longer I stay there, the more familiar I become. The less unknown it is, the less I fear. In these uncertain times where it is recommended we haul ourselves up in our towers, we are relying on sources of entertainment we would otherwise take for granted. Yes, we have Netflix. Yes, we have the internet. But let's not forget that the majority of the TV shows and films you're watching are based on books. Books came first. Books will out. So here are the first five books on my top 10 nonfiction list. Number 10 is We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie 
published by HarperCollins in London, 2014. Everybody should read this book. But more importantly, everyone can read this book. It is a slim, pamphlet-like book, a modified version of a TED talk Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie gave about feminism. Everyone can read it, firstly because of its length, you could finish it in one sitting, but also because Adichie's language is so accessible, her ideas so grounded, her experience so moving, you'll forget the length and just keep turning the pages. Here's a section I really love. Now here's a story from my childhood. When I was in primary school in Nazuka, a university town in southeastern Nigeria, my teacher said at the beginning of the term that she would give the class a test and whoever got the highest score would be class monitor. Class monitor was a big deal. If you were class monitor, you could write down the names of the noisemakers each day, which was heady enough power on its own. It was an exciting prospect to the nine-year-old me. I very much wanted to be class monitor and I got the highest score on the test. Then, to my surprise, my teacher said the monitor had to be a boy. She had forgotten to make that clear earlier. She assumed it was obvious. A boy had the second highest score on the test and he would be monitor. What was even more interesting is that this boy was a sweet, gentle soul who had no interest in patrolling the class with a stick or I was full of ambition to do so. If we do things over and over again, it becomes normal. If we see the same thing over and over again, it becomes normal. If only boys are made class monitor, then at some point we all think, even if unconsciously, that the class monitor has to be a boy. If we keep seeing only men as heads of corporations, it starts to seem natural that only men should be heads of corporations. You can watch the whole TED talk below. And if you're learning English, this would be a fantastic opportunity to buy the book and use a subtitled version of the video to check what you've understood and to check your pronunciation. Number nine on the list is The Book Thieves, the Nazi looting of Europe's libraries and the race to return a literary inheritance by Anders Rydell published by Penguin Random House in New York, 2015. And this is a section from the book. In this war, books would not be so much a casualty as a weapon. The Nazis wanted to defeat their enemies, not only on the battlefield, but also in thought. This victory would endure long after the grave, after the genocides and the Holocaust, not only to wipe out, but also to justify their actions. It was not by destroying the literary and cultural heritage of their enemies that the Nazis intended to prevail, rather by stealing, owning, and twisting it, and by turning their libraries and archives, their history, inheritance, and memory against themselves, to capture the right to write their history. It was a concept that set in motion the most extensive book theft in the history of the world. There are so many books about World War II that you could spend an entire lifetime reading them all. There are so many areas to look at. The history is so vast and so detailed. But Anders Rydell's The Book Thieves sheds light on a story I had never heard before. I knew about the horror of the book burnings 
in which the Nazis obliterated an entire history and civilization, but I didn't know about the Nazis' intellectual war. In the book Thieves, Rydell draws upon thousands of archives and first-hand experiences, exploring the way the Nazis used literature as propaganda. He shows the looting of the Jews' treasured books, which resulted in libraries that fit the Nazis' ideology. This terrifying portrait of Europe under Nazi rule, or attack, exposes worrying truths about our own current political climate. Where histories are rewritten, truths obscured and lies perpetuated, it is devastating enough to wage war upon a people. It is quite another to wage war upon their minds. So I'm going to read a section from the book a little bit more. Goethe, the national poet who came to personify these ideals, was destined to be transformed in the late 1800s into the moral role model of the new German nation. Everything that did not conform to this image of Goethe was hidden at the bottom of the archive and even destroyed. Letters of admiration sent by Goethe to Napoleon were burnt. Goethe had openly spoken in favour of both cosmopolitanism and internationalism, yet his ideas were reinterpreted after his death as strictly nationalist, not least after the German dukedom was formed in 1871. The same distortions also afflicted philosophers such as Hegel, Fichte and Herder, whose ideas were misapplied, overemphasized, or even falsified in order to confer legitimacy on nationalism. Number eight on the list is On Writing by Stephen King, published by Simon & Schuster, New York, 2010. We all know Stephen King. He has created some of the most memorable characters and stories, such as Carrie, The Shining, It, Misery, Stand By Me, The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, Cujo, Salem's Lot. The list literally goes on. I'm the first to admit that Stephen King can be hit and miss. He himself has said as much. Which is why I would argue that Stephen King's best book to date is on writing. The book is split into two parts, CB, which acts as King's writing autobiography, and Toolbox, which is King's advice about writing. Even for those who have no interest in writing personally, this book is a fascinating insight into a prolific writer's life. We see his early days teaching English and surviving on next to nothing, whilst trying to write his novel in a cramped caravan. We're with him on the day he receives the telegram telling him Carrie is to be published. We hear the details of King's alcoholism and drug abuse, churning out novels such as Cujo that he has very little memory of. This is a story of survival. King sobers up and continues writing. This is also a story of persistence. I believe some people are born to be something specific. King was born to be a writer. It is in his blood, bones, flesh. It is not a desire to write for him, but a necessity. He has to write. I find that quality infectious. Perhaps this is why I keep returning to the book. So I'm going to read a section from the book, which is when King was an alcoholic writing every day. At the end of my adventures, I was drinking a case of 16-ounce tall boys a night. And there's one novel, Cujo, that I barely remember writing at all. I don't say that with pride or shame only with a vague sense of sorrow and loss. I like that book. 
I wish I could remember enjoying the good parts as I put them down on the page. At the worst of it, I no longer wanted to drink and no longer wanted to be sober either. I felt evicted from life. At the start of the road back, I just tried to believe the people who said that things would get better if I gave them time to do so. And I never stopped writing. Some of the stuff that came out was tentative and flat, but at least it was there. I buried those unhappy, lacklustre pages in the bottom drawer of my desk and got on to the next project. Little by little I found the beat again, and after that I found the joy again. I came back to my family with gratitude and back to my work with relief. I came back to it the way folks come back to the summer cottage after a long winter, checking first to make sure nothing had been stolen or broken during the cold season. Nothing had been. It was all still there, still all whole. Once the pipes were thawed out and the electricity was turned back on, everything worked fine. Number seven on the list is One of Your Own, The Life and Death of Myra Hindley by Carol Ann Lee, published by Mainstream Publishing Company in Great Britain, 2010. All you have to do is simply utter the words, Moore's Murders, and the people of the United Kingdom know what you mean. The story is infamous, mainly because the murderers were a couple that killed five children and buried four of them on the Yorkshire Moors. At the time, and to this day, people couldn't believe that a woman could do these terrible things. This woman was Myra Hindley, the subject of over a hundred books, TV shows, documentaries, podcasts, etc. Very few writers have managed to succeed in portraying Hindley's life and crimes accurately and without sensationalism. Very few have managed to look at both sides of the evidence to come to a definitive or in some cases indefinite, explanation to what happened. Carol Ann Lee is one of the writers that has succeeded, and in my opinion, she is the writer that has succeeded beyond expectation. The case of the Moors murders itself is murky, bleak, and like a lot of true crime stories, sad. Carol Ann Lee doesn't so much resist this, but remains objective. The question of Hinley being a monster is one that has gone on since she was arrested. People have argued that she has been treated unfairly because she was a woman. People have argued the opposite. Carol Ann Lee, in the most excellent piece of writing about the case I've ever read, brings all the information together, pulls away the emotion, and tells us what we all know to be true. Here's an example. I knew what we were doing was wrong, she admitted, but I can't explain it. The real depth of her involvement will never be known, but over the years fragments of her participation in the crimes emerged from Myra Hindley herself. We don't know whether she was present at the first four murders. Predictably, she insisted she wasn't, and equally predictably, Ian asserts that she was. But she was standing in front of Edward Evans when he was killed, passing the comment an hour or so later his eyes registered astonishment when you hit him. Ian Fairley, who arrested Ian Brady the following morning, proclaims how she acted afterwards reveals that she had seen other killings. Then there was the preparation of it all. She conferred with Ian about the lure held out to the victim to entice them into the vehicle. 
She discussed with him where she would drive and what she would do. She accepted a record on the morning of each murder, knowing its significance. She ventured into a department store to buy a black wig to disguise herself and stood at a till to hold over the murder weapons for John Kilbride's death, a knife, rope and spade. She hired the abduction vehicles. She bought the tape recorder that would document Leslie's last hours and Patty Hodges talking about the little girl's disappearance. She bought the camera Ian used to take photographs of the victims and their graves. And afterwards, she crouched on John Kilbride's grave, staring down at the ground with a strange half-smile on her lips. She stood grinning on the rocks overlooking at least three graves while Ian snapped away with his camera. She enjoyed picnicking on the moor beside the graves with her sister and children from the neighbourhood. I'm just going to read a few other bits. Uh, this is from the beginning of the book. This is called Pariah. And it's the date is the 20th of November 2002. Her funeral was held at night. Rain slanted in from the fens, as it had all day, beating with a thin, hollow sound on the roof of the small, 1930s-built chapel. The gardens of remembrance were pitch black, but the gravel courtyard burned with light, and the white droughts of breath issuing from the multitude of journalists who represented every broadcast, tabloid and TV news company in the country. Closer to the chapel and guarding the gates were the legions of police drafted in to search the grounds for intruders, the luminous bands on their uniforms, a glare of brilliant yellow among the black trees. No one wanted to drive the hearse carrying Myra Hindley. Discreet inquiries had been made by the prison service more than a year before, when her health was already in steep decline. The authorities had anticipated a problem, but the volume of refusals took them by surprise. In Suffolk, within whose boundaries High Point Prison lies, every firm of funeral directors declined to handle the body. Their response was echoed by larger companies nationwide. Finally, after months of negotiations, a firm was found in a town 200 miles away who reluctantly agreed its identity protected by the prison service and home office officials who would divulge no more than that the firm was located somewhere in the north. An internal prison memo noted, Ipswich Crematorium also refused to cremate Myra. I will make further inquiries regarding costs and funding and try to find out how the funeral of Fred West was managed, as this is the closest parallel I can think of. Number six on this list is A Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, published by HarperCollins in London, 2012. I read this book on a plane ride from Cardiff to Edinburgh. The journey only lasts an hour, and I'm a slow reader, but I was captivated. This devastating memoir about Joan Didion losing her husband, John, spoke to me very personally. My father had died a year before I read this book and over that time I had been resistant to stories of grief. Misery doesn't love company, because company makes others' miseries seem less important. But this book very much spoke to me. That's because this wasn't some authorial voice discussing grief like Freud or other psychologists, but something deeply personal. Didion is moving through her grief at the point of writing, just as I was at the point of reading.
This is a book anyone who is grieving should read, yes. But this is also a book everyone should read. One thing I struggled with was that the people around me didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what to say or do, so they simply became invisible. This was not helpful. I'd have preferred somebody say something wrong, then I'd be allowed to show some emotion, have some feeling. So I'd recommend everyone read this book, especially those who haven't lost someone close to them or suffered with grief. Consider this book as your gateway, as your chance to be there for someone. This is the opening of the book. Chapter one. Life changes fast. Life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity. Those were the first words I wrote after it happened. The computer dating on the Microsoft Word file, Notes on Change, reads May 20th, 2004, 11.11pm. But that would have been a case of opening the file and reflexively pressing save when I closed it. I had made no changes to this file in May. I had made no changes to that file since I wrote the words in January 2004, a day or two or three after the fact. For a long time I wrote nothing else. Life changes in the instant, the ordinary instant. At some point, in the interest of remembering what seemed most striking about what had happened, I considered adding those words, the ordinary instant. I saw immediately that there would be no need to add the word ordinary, because there would be no forgetting it. The word never left my mind. It was in fact the ordinary nature of everything preceding the event that prevented me from truly believing it had happened, absorbing it, incorporating it, getting past it. I recognize now there was nothing unusual in this. Confronted with sudden disaster, we all focus on how unremarkable the circumstances in which the unthinkable occurred the clear blue sky from which the plane fell, the routine errand that ended on the shoulder with the car in flames, the swings where the children were playing as usual when the rattlesnake struck from the ivy. Here's another section I'd like to read. Survivors look back and see omens, messages they missed. They remember the tree that died, the gull that splattered onto the hood of the car. They live by symbols. They read meaning into the barrage of spam on the unused computer, the delete key that stops working, the imagined abandonment in the decision to replace it. The voice on my answering machine is still John's. The fact that it was his in the first place was arbitrary, having to do with who was around on the day the answering machine last needed programming. But if I needed to retape it now, I would do so with a sense of betrayal. One day when I was talking on the telephone in his office, I mindlessly turned the pages of the dictionary that had always been left open on the table by his desk. When I realized what I had done, I was stricken. What word had he last looked up? What had he been thinking? By turning the pages, had I lost the message? Or had the message been lost before I touched the dictionary? Had I refused to hear the message? 
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast in which I get to read some of my favorite books to you. Please stay tuned for part two in which I review more nonfiction books and we complete our list. Some of them talk about adoption, some of them neurosurgery, some of them reading. Please share any of your own book recommendations in the comments below. And if you have any questions regarding the vocabulary, simply send me a message or ask me a question in the comments below. To learn more from me, all you have to do is click on the button below and sign up to Intrepid English Academy. You'll even get a seven-day free trial. Thank you again. I'm Tom, one of the teachers here. It's been great to read to you and talk about books, and I look forward to doing it again. Thank you.